Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate has advanced the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure package that Democrats demand must be linked to a $3.5 trillion social and climate package. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's breakneck withdrawal from Afghanistan and pressure on the Afghan government to release thousands of hardened Taliban fighters has energized the radical group that has seized a dozen major cities in, in roughly a week, including Kandahar and Herat, in cycle, encircling Kabul and its six million residents. Refugees have fled to the capital to escape the brutal advance that's killed or wounded thousands of Afghans. Uh, what took two decades of hard fighting, nearly $2 trillion, and thousands of America's kill, Americans killed and wounded have been undone in just a few weeks, just as with ISIS in Iraq, the Taliban have seized U.S. and allied equipment and freed their imprisoned colleagues, accelerating their gains. U.S. leaders still hope they can convince the Taliban to accept a peace deal, which is highly unlikely. This, as Washington has flat out begged the Taliban to spare uh, the U.S. embassy in Kabul, uh, that the Taliban have neither renounced al-Qaeda nor ISIS, uh, raises worries that the country will again become a terrorist haven, this time without uh, U.S. forces and allied forces able to do anything about it. President Biden has dispatched more than 3,000 troops to Kabul not to stop the Taliban from taking the capital, but to help withdraw 3,000 civilians from the U.S. embassy. Joining us to discuss the week in Washington and beyond are Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, former Pentagon Comptroller Bob Hale, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn, who heads the defense program at CNAS, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many affiliations is associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello. Take a weekly deep dive uh, into naval issues. Our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our recent coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, let's start, as we almost always do, with the budget. There's a lot to discuss on Afghanistan, and I know that passions are running high uh, uh, in this team about that. Bob, uh, let me start off with you, right? Uh, $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure me measure, enormous bipartisan support, filibuster-proof, in fact, uh, as it goes into the House, where Nancy Pelosi now has a challenge, because uh, there are a lot of moderates who want this deal to go through on both sides. On the other hand, even some Democrats do not want to see the $3.5 trillion uh, budget uh, bl blueprint that's been put out. We also have debt ceiling, a debt ceiling crisis looming with no apparent plans to address it. We have a potentially long continuing resolution on the way. Where are we and where are we headed and how is this unlikely to unfold? Because as we were preparing for this, you noted, we might also have uh, to deal with the government shutdown ultimately as, as a consequence. Bago, thanks for the chance to be here. Um, I, uh, I, I'm going to focus first on defense. Uh, there's good news. It's not last week, but a couple of weeks ago, the SASC passed a bill that added $25 billion to the top line. Pretty good size hike. Uh, vote was 22 to 3 in the, the committee, which is roughly evenly divided. So it was highly bipartisan. I had a pretty good chance the Senate appropriators will eventually go along with something like that. The House appropriators marked up to the president's budget or close to it. And so we'll have to wait and see what the House Armed Services Committee does. But my guess is there are the votes to get a significant increase in the defense budget above the president's budget level. So that's the good news. The bad news is it may be a while in coming. As you said, uh, we will certainly be on a continuing resolution uh, starting on the 1st of October. How long? Well, I looked at the continuing resolutions after the, over the last 20 years, 50% of them ended in November or December. And, and I think that's the most likely outcome, uh, particularly because we'll have to solve the debt ceiling by then, and this may get all have to get rolled into a package. But about a third of them went into the next calendar year, and you can't rule it out. Very few of them, only about 10%, got solved in October, and I don't think this one uh, will, will be one of them. So we're going to be on a CR for a while, probably a good part of the 
of the rest of this uh, calendar year. The debt ceiling is worrisome for a lot of reasons. It has the potential to devastate the economy. I think in the end, Congress will raise the debt ceiling, but it won't be pretty in getting there. And I note that the situation is exactly what it was in 2011 when that, then Congress and President Obama couldn't reach a deal on the debt ceiling. And what we get out of that was the Budget Control Act of 2011. I don't think that's likely this time. Congress has been burned by those ceilings. I don't think they'll go back. But I could see linking the defense budget maybe with a plus up to the debt ceiling in some way or other key pieces of legislation, which could lead to stalemate. And I don't think it's likely that we see a government shutdown. I don't think you can rule it out uh, with this partisanship that's going on. Uh, so we, we've got a tough and, and Nothing really new, but we've got a, a tough uh, last quarter of the calendar year and some issues that are going to be very important to defense. Uh, just a, a brief. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, just a brief mention on the infrastructure bill as it regards defense. There's nothing specific in it for defense that I'm aware of, uh, but there there's an, uh, a kind of indirect benefit. Uh, defense has terrible infrastructure problems on its bases, many its many of its bases, which are old. Some dating back to just after World War II. <clears throat> but they also have infrastructure problems in the cities and towns surrounding the bases to get the sewer and water and electricity to the base. Those cities and towns may benefit uh, from the infrastructure bill. So there could be some indirect uh, benefits for defense to the, uh, for defense to the $1 trillion uh, infrastructure package if it passes, uh, but I think no direct benefits. Uh, I'll go back to you. And we, and we did, uh, Bob, uh, talk a little bit about that last week, right, in terms of the $50 billion package that Senator Shelby uh, right. has, been, has been pushing. Dove, um, give us your sense on where we start and then want to get um, uh, Byron. Uh, Byron, you've also been investigating uh, the Green Book uh, and have done some uh, very good work in your reports this week. And then Stacey, obviously, get your take uh, as well, right, because no bucks, no buck Rogers. There's no strategy without, without money. Um, Dove, give us, give us your sense on where we sit right now. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I agree with Bob. We're, we're going to definitely have a CR. Uh, my guess is it will run into the new year, probably March or so. We've had a bunch of those. Uh, and um, if there is a government shutdown, and, and Bob was really quite phenomenal managing the department through that when he was comptroller, uh, his deputy at the time was now the comptroller, Mike McCord. And so I think that if the shutdown hits, uh, Mike will manage the department through it so that there'll be minimal turbulence uh, like there was the last time around, at least for DOD. Um, I don't know uh, whether, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Pacific Deterrence Initiative and how the government's handled that. But the truth of the matter is that with this $25 billion, there is supposed to be some more money for PDI question is how much of that 25 billion will actually make it through all four committees and if it's a lower number will pdi be hurt now everybody pays lip, lip service to pdi but of course it's competing in that 25 billion with a bunch of legacy programs which congress cares a lot more about than dod itself uh and finally uh, on the infrastructure uh as bob says it's the towns as well as the bases um, and the, the, the difficulty with infrastructure and frankly with science and technology is there's this sense that, oh, well, if you spend the money in the commercial sphere, it'll redound back to the DOD sphere. That doesn't necessarily happen. And so uh, the fact that there's this big infrastructure bill may or may not uh, have any beneficial effects for DOD. You know, Dove, interesting point on uh, the PDI, uh, the, the Pacific Defense Initiative. Stacey, uh, let me bring you into the, into the discussion at this point, uh, because it's of, the, the, the jury is actually split on this, right? I mean, some people are assailing this as not enough and too little and badly done, whereas uh, there are some, even on the GOP side, who say, actually, this was a really, really good measure that had a lot of right things in it. It's just that the administration did a terrible job selling it. Um, and, and ended up with self-inflicted wounds. We're going to talk about Afghanistan and what may be an even a, a, an order of magnitude bigger self-inflicted wound in a, in, a, in a second. But why don't you give us your sense on the measure, what you liked about it and what you don't like about it and needs to be redressed by, uh, by lawmakers? 
Sure, thanks, Vago. I think uh, PDI was interesting and somewhat puzzling because the administration ended up tagging a bunch of things that were mostly platforms and didn't necessarily uh, align with what the Indo-PACOM commander had requested in the report that he submitted to Congress. Um, and it, it seems that a lot of the investments that they were interested in um, actually were more posture related, doing things to improve the resiliency and survivability of our forces in that region. And we didn't see too much of that. The big omission was, um, well, it's in there in certain ways, but not necessarily Aegis ashore for Guam, um, which was one of the number one requests, I believe, of the Indo-PACOM commander at the time. And it, it, that is, uh, there's funding for uh, missile defense for Guam, but it isn't um, clear what exactly that's going to be. Um, so you've seen that some in Congress just weren't happy that it tended to focus on platforms that we were planning to acquire, like the F-35 regardless, rather than specific steps that could help to redress the military balance in the Pacific in the near term. And um, I do think that uh, this might have just been the result of the limited amount of time the administration had in terms of preparing the budget and they just went through and tagged some things for PDI. But going forward, I think that they will, um, they will make some changes to it to uh, improve, uh, to make it further aligned with what the Indo-Pacific commander wanted. I personally um, am not, uh, I think that we certainly wanna improve the resiliency and survivability of our forces, but um, active defenses aren't necessarily the best or the most cost-effective way to do so. Um, in all of the war games that I've been in, the first thing that gets uh, hit with a missile is uh, the radar for uh, Aegis Ashore or that or things like that. So I would like to see more efforts to improve um, and reduce vulnerability through passive defense measures. I loved uh, the statement that uh, Admiral John Greenert uh, used to make when he was uh, CNO, right? Nobody ever defended their way to victory, right? And and so at some point, you've got to sort of figure out how much of it you're spending on defense, how much of it do you spend on offense, actually, to complicate um, uh, your uh, adversary's uh, calculus. Um, uh, speaking of calculus, uh, the uh, Green Book, uh, Byron, um, first, you know, any comment you have more broadly on any of, of what you've already heard, but also then build and use that as a segue to get to what you thought was interesting in the Green Book for anybody who doesn't know the Green Book, you know, right? Uh, budget is policy and strategy, ultimately, and this lays out where, it, where we've been uh, and hints at where we might be going. Well, just to add to some of the comments that were made earlier about the budget picture, I think it's very complicated right now. You had this letter that nine moderate House Democrats sent to Speaker Pelosi saying, you've got to bring the infrastructure bill up first before you take up the reconciliation package. That's really going to kind of screw up the calculus uh, of how this whole thing would move forward in the House. So I think we're in for a pretty rough September. And to, you know, Doves and Bob's points, I think I think consensus is absolutely you're going to see a continuing resolution. The real question is, you know, can this all get resolved by December or do we see something that stretches into the April, May period? There's precedent for that. But you saw actually in some of the earnings reports that came out uh, last week and the week before, some of the services contractors were already talking about a slowdown in contract awards. So um, that that may be kind of the canary in the coal mine that, that people are starting to hunker down here for uh, potentially an extended CR. Um, on the Green Book, look, you know, we all knew this was going to be kind of a truncated Green Book because new administration, uh, as has been well known, did not have <clears throat> out year earnings expect out year uh, projections. Uh, beyond the FY22 request. So, but, you know, there's a wealth of historic data. And what I typically do, uh, thankfully, the department now allows uh, analysts, uh, planners to download all these uh, files in Excel, and it's pretty easy to crunch data. So, you know, just some very quick and simple observations uh, without, you know, going to the very obvious ones about the cyclicality of defense. Um, some of the things that I've called out were operations and maintenance per active duty military personnel um, has actually started to trend up again. 
Um, it, it peaked, I think, in 2011 or 2012 in constant dollars around $230,000 ahead. Um, you know, it, it came down, but now it's starting to creep up again. I think that bears some examination. Again, two other points that I think people knew, but it's worth reiterating. Uh, the relation of procurement to RDT&E remains depressed. Um, you could argue that's a function of great power competition and they need to invest uh, more in defense, but equally, you know, maybe we should be buying more. But that ratio, if you look at it in a historic context, it remains at a very low level of about 1.2 times. And then finally, just the overall investment share of the total DOD budget also has remained at relatively low levels, around 34%. So there's more to go into. Um, you know, I've written about this, but, uh, but you know, if, if anybody is lacking uh, a good summertime read, I highly recommend downloading the Green Book. Well said, and I think that actually an enormous number of people in our audience uh, will, uh, will, will take you up on that. Uh, Byron, I know, I know that that's a relaxing read uh, for, for me as well. Um, and, I, and I know I speak for uh, everybody else on the call for that. I, I know that I'm in their spare time. Uh, Bob, Bob, Bob you, were, you were upset because the cover changed to black one year, weren't you? I was. When I first got to be comfortable, they changed the color of the cover to black. I said, you can't do this. This is the green book. And they changed it right back. They all agreed right. with me. Um, well but said. now, you know, there is no cover anymore. I mean, I don't know if they even print the thing uh, anymore. It, obviously, it's so handy to have it online. Uh, and I and I know uh, Dove and, and Stacy uh, share our, our thoughts. Um, a quick word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by General Motors Defense and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Just to point out that I was not Bob's immediate predecessor and I did not change the cover of the Green Book. So there. Well done and and well said. And I remember at the time that it was a little uh, controversial. Bob, I think uh, I did an interview with you, and that actually came up, uh, and uh, and it it may have come from Byron actually uh, or Todd Harrison. So one of the two of them get credit for having noted that the cover had changed. And I recall having asked you that question uh, as well. In all seriousness, we are rapidly getting back to square one uh, in Afghanistan in many uh, respects, uh, which is uh, amazing. Um, as uh, 45,000 U.S. troops, 4,500 U.S. troops and some allied troops were sort of keeping the place going, uh, giving backbone to Afghan uh, forces. There were many Taliban fighters that had been um, in many, many hard-fought battles uh, taken off the streets. Afghan special operators were doing a terrific job. But Fred Kaplan wrote this morning in the New York Times, and I think rightfully, that Trump may have put Biden in a bind but Biden is the guy with all the foreign policy experience who screwed up the execution of this royally and can be said to have been responsible for this outcome in, in all candor. Uh, you know, uh, Dove, you for months have been saying, like, why would we withdraw our troops at the peak of the fighting season? Why wouldn't you wait until afterward? Why are you? And, and the Taliban have no interest in negotiating. They haven't renounced, uh, al, you know, Al Qaeda or anybody else and ultimately have made no guarantees about whether or not they're going to be anything but what they were uh, in the very beginning of this, uh, you know, with Mullah Omar and where he, he stands on things, Pakistan's negative role in the entire equation. Um, it's abundantly clear we're not going to be stopping Afghanistan, you know, stopping Kabul from falling. What's the opportunity cost of this debacle? Um, I mean, isn't this a historic screw up? And moreover, isn't this the kind of thing that the Biden administration, you, you can't say I'm a reliable ally and partner and literally abandon. I mean, I think the hardest part of this is numerous administration spokespeople, including people we all know, keep saying we're not abandoning the Afghans and, and we're not betraying them. We're obviously, I mean, the, the pullout itself is an upthrust middle finger to Afghans. We're, we're just interested in our own little slice of this. And we're not even self, right, it, 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 as, as Fred puts in his piece, not only are we doing the wrong thing, a great power shouldn't be doing this the way it's doing it because it erodes confidence in anything else that we would be doing around the world. Dove, start us off on this. You have folks who are in the middle of this emerging yeah. disaster. Is this going to be an anvil tied around this president's neck, both domestically and internationally? And if so, why? And I should point out in The Hill, you've got a piece where you say that this is actually worse than the American pullout of Saigon, which I remember as a young kid watching live on TV asking myself whiskey tango foxtrot as well 
Well, I, I you know, I can't say that it'll, it, it'll be the worst thing that happens to Biden because he's got more than three years left. Uh, but a couple of things. In the first place, even if we were going to pull out troops, the biggest mistake I believe we made was pulling out of Bagram. The air, the air base is 30 miles from Kabul. We had said that we would use our aircraft to uh, knock out anything that the Taliban did that was sort of what we interpreted to be out of bounds. Well, if you've, if you've actually flown, and I think some of the folks on this uh, program have flown, but I certainly have, from the Gulf to uh, Kabul, it's a long ride. And if you're going to try to do anything with bombers, you've got one shot. We are terrible at battle damage assessment. We've been bombing hospitals even in the best of times over the past 20 years. We'll have one shot and maybe we won't even have that uh, because the Taliban will know we're coming, which means that our whole program of somehow saving everything through uh, air aircraft fire uh, is simply is nonsense. We needn't have given up Bagram. We needn't have pulled out as many troops as we did. We could have left some more, not thousands and thousands, but a couple of thousand. And that's what I've been saying for some time. Now, my biggest worry, quite frankly, and the reason I, I've written that this is worse than Vietnam, Vietnam left us with a syndrome that, you know, how are we going to ever fight another war? And then came 1991 and we fought a very successful war. And many people said, myself included, that we'd finally beaten the syndrome. This is different because now, the Taliban, which uh, actually on paper promised last year in Doha to uh, Zal Khalilzad that, well, they're not going to harbor any terrorists anymore. If you believe that, there's a bridge I'll sell you. There are several bridges I'll sell you. They've never given up their ties to Al-Qaeda. They've never given up their ties to the ISIS branch in Afghanistan. They're not going to go and attack anybody else themselves because they're hemmed in by the Iranians, by the PACs, by the by the some of the Central Asian uh, neighbors they've got. And they all are a little bit suspicious of the Taliban, certainly not going to start up with China, which is their other border country. But they're going to harbor these people again. And these people will go after Americans, maybe not in the United States itself, although possibly there too, but certainly elsewhere in the world. And then what will Biden say? So it seems to me that this is a disastrous mistake. And as you said, and as Fred Kaplan wrote, it's not just that we did it, but how we've done it, when we've done it, and frankly, why we've done it. Um, Stacy, I think you have a uh, fundamentally different view of this. Uh, why do you think the administration is on the right track? And uh, moreover, how do you make the case that this has actually been well executed? So I actually wouldn't make that case. I agree that the execution has been poor and leaves much to be desired. But I think the fundamental policy choice of leaving Afghanistan um, is the right one and that the United States has um, been present for 20 years and that has helped people on the ground in Afghanistan who I feel terrible for. But um, it's not clear that we can sustain those gains without being there for the indefinite future. Um, Dove is right that there are limits to what we can do from the Gulf. It's a pretty long haul. Um, but we, I, I think the bigger issue right now is that the Biden administration has made it clear that they're not going to do anything to stop this advance um, and that they're letting it happen and that the execution of the withdrawal um, with this sort of the farcical negotiations that have been continuing to go on and um, not sort of better planning to protect those that have assisted the United States and uh, the coalition that's been there fighting the translators and thinking about the um, follow on effects in terms of refugees and how to manage this uh, better where you're not just thinking about um, getting out US forces is something that um, the it's been a, it's just a failing right now. But on the issue of leaving, I do think that um, it is the right choice and that the administration is in a better position to keep an eye on Afghanistan, because I agree, I would be suspicious of the motives of the Taliban. I do not think they're fundamentally changed or good people. 
but we have better intelligence than we did before. We, if we remain vigilant and keep an eye on the situation, we can intervene as necessary and can use air power effectively should we choose to do so. Um, but let me push, push back on that a little bit. We had good intelligence while we were still there. We're not gonna be there. And the reason we have good intelligence is we were in different parts of the country and Afghans were in control of those different parts of the country. All of those records are now sitting in Taliban hands, and unsurprisingly, reprisal executions have been continuing apace since that happened, right? The second question I would have is just to, you know, American forces are in Europe eight decades after they arrived, right? So why is it the right choice to get out when a very economic, when we're keeping the same amount of troops in Iraq because we realize what's at stake when we leave, right? So, I mean, at some point, how on earth does this make any sense? And how is it that we're not going to have to launch another detailed operation because one of the, the Taliban are not stupid. They're not going to be out in open areas where B-52 strikes, you know, are going to take them out anymore. They're going to be, as, the, as ISIS did, intermingled with the population to try to make this extremely difficult. So, I mean, my, my pushback would be, What's the what's what's the logic here? Because this could have been a five billion dollar a year mission, and no American, not even one American casualty in a year, right? I mean, we could do this from the rear, but we were helping support a pre-industrial ally in sort of at least keeping the thing together. Argo, could I jump in? That's why I emphasized Bagram. I think what Stacy talked about would have worked if we had simply kept that air base, because then we could have launched fighters for multiple sorties and hopefully have at least sent the message to the Taliban that there were some red lines that we really would not let them cross. Without a base in Afghanistan, and it's clear that the Central Asians aren't gonna give us bases and Pakistan won't, China certainly won't, and Iran certainly won't, it's a completely different story. I would also, but I would agree with Stacy about the nature of these crazy negotiations. Um, uh, this reminds me of Baghdad Bob, if you remember the, the Iraqi yes. Minister of Information who basically said while we were based storming Saddam's palace that the, the Americans weren't even within 100 miles of Iraq. That's what's going on now. And that, frankly, the fact that we are so uh, oblivious to reality must scare the, the, the you-know-what out of our allies. Well, so Stacy, I mean, I want to give you an opportunity to answer that. And then the follow-up question is, what, what signal, I mean, the United States is trying to sell itself as the partner of choice in the world. At the same time, the Chinese are telling everybody in the world, hey, you know what? We're transactional. There's no moral BS with us. And frankly, they've made it abundantly clear they're going to be moving into the vacuum of Afghanistan for its natural resource extraction and do it on a cash on the barrel head basis. But I'm sort of curious, we are in parts of the world for prolonged periods of time. Corey Shockey joined us yesterday on the program and we, we talked at, at length about this. So why is it we're having a bigger troop presence that's gonna be lasting in more places in smarter ways in Iraq, but not in Afghanistan, right? I mean, and, and we're present around the world, whether in Asia or in Europe for decades since World War II uninterrupted to advance our security interests, why would we not do that in Afghanistan and Iraq, where we've also spilled a considerable amount of blood and spent a considerable amount of treasure? You are absolutely right. We are around the world, but I think these are fundamentally different situations. Um, we stayed in Europe and we stayed in Asia after World War II because we were worried about external threats after we moved through the occupation of Germany and Japan, obviously. And the difference here with uh, Afghanistan is it's obviously an internal situation and we have been propping up a, a government that doesn't have... Um, the capacity to sustain itself and faces internal challenges from the Taliban. That is similar to Iraq, but I think from the U.S.'s perspective and interest, Iraq, we have more interest there because it is so integral to the broader Gulf region. And to we've seen um, what can happen when you have rampant instability in the Middle East, especially uh, with Syria still being, um, I mean, it's not quite the failed state it was anymore, but 
that that area uh, can be very problematic for the United States. Um, in Afghanistan, honestly, we do want to worry about, and I am concerned about terrorism in the long run, but I'm not sure it is worth the investment. Um, Afghanistan is much more isolated and we've done so much. I don't know why staying is going to change the outcome. And in terms of our allies and partners, I, I mean, the domino theory proved not to be true during the Cold War. And there's been a lot of research since then on credibility that has shown that countries don't necessarily view it that way. Certainly, um, governments that are relying on the United States to stay in power or using uh, American military forces to help them to combat internal threats might be concerned. But you could make an argument that you look in the Indo-Pacific and where there are countries that are really worried about the US's commitment there um, and the fact that they have not uh, done as much in terms of going back to the pivot or whatever um, and focusing on countering China, that this is a sign that the United States is serious about that and is gonna um, work on following through in that theater. So, so you don't see any negative repercussion for our allies and partners in the Asia Pacific in, in the wake of um, the abandonment of Afghanistan. So there's no, that they shouldn't see a linkage. I mean, which is the case the administration makes. These are two separate issues and nobody conflates those two. I, I obviously can't say nobody conflates those two. Um, I, I do think that they're separate and that a lot of folks have been wondering. And I mean, you just had, um, Zach Cooper and um, Adam Liff had an article in Foreign Affairs about how much the United States promises in terms of bolstering the security situation in the Pacific um, have deviated from what we've actually implemented and follow through. And I think that in the end, most, most nations are fairly self-interested and can understand that uh, there are different circumstances um, in these two places. Dove, let me put that uh, to you because Stacy makes a good point and, and veterans of the war uh, have told me the same thing, right? Those who've, um, whose friends and comrades have paid the ultimate price and that they've done multiple deployments into the country have said, look, I mean, ultimately the Afghans themselves are, are just not taking this seriously. And that was, I think, President Obama's big frustration. We're giving you a jump. We're giving you resources unscrew yourselves and take this seriously because it is existential for you. And I'm willing to make this sacrifice if you do your part, right? I mean, and, and, and I think, Stacy, what you're saying, and I think the administration looks at it and says, that's right, we gave Germany and Japan and Italy a new lease, and they grabbed those reins and built and developed economies and democracy and moved forward, right? It, it wasn't like, right? I mean, by 1960, Night, you know, by the late 50s, by the mid 50s, these these countries had picked themselves up and, and were uh, already like Germany was becoming an economic powerhouse at that point. And, and so was Japan. Right. How do you respond to those people that, look, this was for the Afghans to screw up or not. And the onus lies on them. They screwed it up. Well, uh, look, I'm sympathetic to this up to uh, a far greater extent than you might realize, because I think that ultimately the mistake we made is that we think we're very good at nation building and we're a disaster at nation building. And I've said that over and over in all kinds of, of venues. Having said that, what were we really concerned about with respect to Afghanistan? Why did we go in there in the first place? We didn't go in there to get women educated. We didn't go in there to help the oppressed uh, Hazara minority. We went in there to get rid of Al-Qaeda. And it seems to me that had we, as I've said, uh, uh, with a relatively small number of forces, um, but basically with an air force presence in the country, which the Taliban might not have been able to overthrow or get rid of, we might still have been able to ensure that the, the official Taliban promised that they would not bring in Al-Qaeda again or ISIS again, uh, we could have ensured that that would keep. That's all that we needed to do. I am totally in agreement that we had no understanding. I mean, it's amazing. After 20 years, we still have no understanding of that country. All we had to read was what Winston Churchill had written about 100 plus years ago when the Brits were trying to do this in Afghanistan. 
And we would have seen that we just don't know how these folks work. And it doesn't help that, of course, we rotate people in and out, or we were doing that, and which meant that we had no basis in, in depth of understanding what makes Afghans tick. We didn't in 1991, um, and we don't in 2021. Um, I should point out last week, Jeff Schlosser, uh, who um, is, is now with Bell, uh, was the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan uh, in 2008-9 and talked about, actually, he really wished that his strategic education was better before he arrived in country and had to learn so much of the complexities of the mission once he arrived there, to your point. And Dove, I know you've said that for uh, a, a very long uh, a very long time. Let, let me. I want to bring Bob and uh, Byron into this conversation because they've been very patient waiting on the sidelines. But Dev, just one follow-up question. At this point, right, I mean, we did hand over Bagram to the Turks uh, and it is now very touch and go. My view is I, I think all bets are off once the Taliban takes the place, gets access to all the intelligence records and files and everything else. And, and they're going to start executing people. And, and we're going to talk about how bad it is. We will never exfiltrate enough people from the country, it's going to cause a human migration crisis again, uh, which is going to hit Europe. And I think we have to look at how that's going to destabilize European governments, frankly, because the first time around is what really energized right-wing movements. They've sort of tamped down. They're going to go whole hog on this uh, again. Uh, Dove, do you think that it's, uh, and the administration has said they're not going to send one troop to help the Afghans at this point. They're on their own. Um, Is it is it possible for us to get back into Bagram in any meaningful way if we wanted to do this and say, okay, we're not going to put one boot there, but we're going to put an expeditionary air division or something in there or expeditionary air force and have them uh, be, um, I'm sorry, I was reading a lot of Cold War stuff and air division sort of popped in my head. Um, do, is, that, is that a doable thing at this point? I mean, would the Turks allow us to do it? Uh, and moreover, sort of where, where what's the Chinese game uh, which which Beijing has been playing very cleverly, and they've you know we've known for years that you know we may have done the heavy lifting, and China is the one who might be actually directly commercially benefiting from this. Well, I wrote about China the other week, and I said just what you said, so I won't repeat that. Um, I don't know that the Turks would want us to come back in because that will just put them in a difficult spot. The Turks get along better with the Taliban than uh, just most other Western countries. Uh, after all said and done, their flag doesn't have a cross on it. It has a star and crescent. Um, and I'm not sure they would want to get caught in the crossfire. I think in the short to medium term, it's going to be very difficult for us to get back in, um, certainly during the course of this administration. And the slaughter will take place, as you say, uh, and we will simply uh, stand by. Bob? Your sense uh, on this, I mean, obviously you were at the policy table uh, throughout the entire process. You were there when the surge, uh, the Afghanistan surge, and let's just be honest, right? I mean, the Afghanistan war may have started in 2001. It, it wasn't earnestly engaged and resourced until 2010. Uh, and you were part of that. How do you view this? And do you believe that this is a mistake uh, of the first order or not. And then Byron, um, you know, I want to get your historical perspective. Dove, you said the British and you talked about Winston Churchill, the British were engaged, right? I mean, the last survivor of uh, Kandahar, right, was a famous portrait and that predated our good friend Winston Churchill. Go ahead, Bob. Well, Vago, I would have preferred a small residual force, but I do understand where Biden's coming from. 20 years, a long time, and it's a ridiculously long time. And, and I also would put it in the context of a president who's focused like a laser on the domestic problems we have, which are enormous uh, with COVID resurging. And, and he's, he's, he's making some progress there. I think he wants to focus on that. And, and I understand. Uh, and, and I think ultimately he will be judged more by the American public on what he does on issues like COVID uh, than he's going to be on Afghanistan. Byron, your sense on where we are, uh, the historical perspective, uh, the, the human perspective. I mean, I think um, while many Americans have not been focused on Afghanistan, I mean, that's sort of the tragedy of this. Mo- most Americans couldn't care less. There were no casualties coming out. They didn't know what was going on. We were, we were in Bosnia for 
many, many decades uh, in, um, you know, arguably uh, you could you could say much more of sort of a European uh, industrial mindset than the the pre-industrial Afghan uh, mindset. But what's your sense at this point on on where we are, where we're going, and what it means geostrategically? Let me take a couple of different strands and see if they'll all come together. Um, look, I think you know the rot was there. Uh, the Taliban is not making these advances, and because there was a strong Afghan security force, you know there really has been ineffective governance. And I keep coming back to a uh, a Dexter Filkins article that was written this past March, where he talked about a visit he made to Afghanistan in December and January. And one of the things that struck me was actually an interview he had in Western Kabul with a Taliban official, basically. They controlled that part of Kabul and the road to Kandahar and were collecting taxes in that region. So I think, you know, back to this point about the United States and these 40 or 50 year occupations, you know, this to me is fundamentally different. Um, we, Korea, Germany, Japan, I mean, we're not, we were in situations where you basically, there were military victories. We fundamentally rewrote um, what was going on in some of those societies and cultures. And uh, we never, you know, I think, quite strongly agree with Dove's point. We just have not been good at this nation building exercise. And I think, you know, I agree with the tragedy on this. I think, I don't think there's a lot that can be done now to reverse it. Um, I think the historic analogies to Vietnam are certainly apt and the human tragedy that's about to unfold in Afghanistan is going to be very poignant. But I also have to keep in mind that, <clears throat> look, the fall of Saigon didn't suddenly see Korea, Japan, Australia all flock to the Soviet Union and China. I mean, I think kind of the fear that somehow this is a, a fundamental test of will of the United States and that people are going to have great doubts about us going forward as an ally, you know, you can't make that analogy based on what happened uh, in Vietnam, uh, in, in South Vietnam in 1975. And I don't think there's going to be an Afghanistan syndrome. I do think that uh, if these, if the Taliban are stupid enough to harbor Al Qaeda and another series of, of terrorist attacks are launched against the United States or U.S. interests, the, the popular will is going to be um, very much in favor of going back and punishing them um, severely again. So I, I think the more interesting questions now are, are okay. You know, if we failed at this in Iraq and Afghanistan, how do we get better at it? Or where are there instances where we, we have been able to find competent governments who've tamped down internal security issues? Colombia might be a case in point. Right. Um, I also think there's a real fundamental question about how you equip uh, military forces in low-income countries. It still sticks in my craw that in 2016, the congressional delegation from Connecticut fought hard to get UH-60s into Afghanistan at the expense of older Soviet or Russian supplied right. equipment that was adequate for what the Afghans used. And so part of this withdrawal of US support, you know, has also been a factor that it, it happened in South Vietnam as well. I mean, we, we fundamentally equipped that army with, with kit that it could not maintain or sustain. So there are a lot of, of lessons to be learned here. And I hope, unfortunately, they are gonna be you know, there'll be partisan sniping on all sides. Frankly, if this had been a Trump administration and, and the same withdrawal had occurred, um, uh, I'm sure there would have been a lot of, of partisan criticism of Trump as well. I, I, I do think there was a certain inevitability to this. And I, I absolutely believe that um, the way the talks have been set up with the Taliban, really the undercutting of the government in Kabul, um, it would have been a matter of time when before more Americans would have died in this conflict. So as, as um, you know, repulsive in some ways as this move is and, and what it says, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate to see bandage ripped off. They're painful, but I kind of agree with Stacy that it was a, it was a question of, of when, not if. Byron, I know you got to peel off for another call. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. The problem with self-inflicted gunshot wounds is the human body can only tolerate so many of them before it becomes fatal. 
Yeah, there's a resilience though. And again, go back to, uh, you know, look, we, we <laughs> the, the fears and I agreed absolutely with Dove's characterizations that Taliban are fundamentally different than the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. But, you know, um, for all the fears about dominoes in Southeast Asia, you know, what, 1978, uh, two communist states were fighting one another, which was never supposed to happen. Uh, Vietnam invaded Cambodia. And in the 1979, there's a war with China. So I think <clears throat> this has some regional implications that I think are really gonna be important. China, Iran, uh, Russia, India, Pakistan, you know, that's really the problem that's now gonna land in their lap. And um, it, it's gonna be fascinating to see how that plays out. There's not gonna be a straight line here, over. Um, very quickly, I know you've gotta go. Uh, you wrote a thoughtful note on this. Lockheed is trying to buy Aerojet. Uh, talk to us about what the Federal Trade Commission did and why this deal could suddenly be problematic. The business team is gonna tackle this on Sunday, but give us your sense. Well, you know, there's a letter that was disclosed. The commissioner of the FTC responded to some questions that Senator Warren had. There frankly was a lot new in the letter in and of itself about US um, kind of antitrust policy, but I think just the timing of it, um, the framing of this issue, it, it, you know, it led me to downgrade my odds that the Aerojet Lockheed Martin deal would go through. Now, having said that, I also think this is a unique instance there aren't a whole lot of companies in the US defense sector that sit in the same position as Aerojet Rocketdyne and the fact that Raytheon Technologies that came out in opposition to this um, also I think is, is telling. So I, I suppose it's kind of like Afghanistan. There are a lot more questions about the what next. Um, you know, what is Lockheed Martin gonna do in their strategy? I don't think this is gonna be an instance that it, it just dampens M&A activity in the defense sector. Uh, there's still a lot of room for deals to go through. I want to go quickly uh, around the horn and give everybody uh, thanks very much for your guys' patience on on that. Uh, I want to just get back to Afghanistan or anything else as you guys may have some last thoughts uh, as we uh, part for the week. Stacy, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Uh, Dove uh, and Bob, sort of, you know, close it out if, if you will. Obviously, there's going to be lots of debate about Afghanistan for years to come. The one thing that I, I think is a red herring is this idea of dominoes. No one is talking about the Taliban going beyond its borders. As I say, they, they'd have a lot of trouble doing it. Um, that's not who they are. But the real worry, and uh, you know, Byron may be right. If, if, if Al-Qaeda or ISIS operating out of Afghanistan will harm Americans, the American public may react strongly. On the other hand, we had the bombing of the World Trade Center in, in during the Clinton years. We had ships being blown up uh, and the American public didn't react very much at all. So it's just not clear to me how this will all play out, except that it's exceedingly troubling. Let, let me ask one uh, follow up question to that. In the event that something happens, does that actually derail our China strategy? I mean, if we have another wave of terror attacks that precipitates another major military operation, that money has to come out of somewhere. Doesn't that actually distract us from, a well, I, you know what I mean? Would it have been better to have had a small percent? You know, I know where Bridge Colby stands on this, but Bridge wanted us out to exclusively focus on China. The trouble when you're the United States is, you, you know, you, you got to pay attention to a lot of different places and can't put all of your focus in one place. Do you think ultimately that becomes a problematic uh, thing? Not necessarily. I don't think we'd ever go back there with uh, 80 or 100,000 troops or anything like that. Uh, there might be some small monies involved, but I, I don't think very, very large ones. Uh, in any event, you know, when you look at a government that's spending for, you know, if you include the previous expenditure and now what they're asking the other three and a half trillion dollars. So a government that's spending or prepared to spend over four trillion dollars, uh, you know, to be to argue that, well, we couldn't spend another 10 or 20 billion uh, on whatever is needed to, to, to deter the Taliban. Uh, is kind of a, a, a weak argument to make. So I think that if anything did happen and we wanted to retaliate, we could and we could add to the budget and it wouldn't break the, uh, it's, let me put it this way, it wouldn't break the debt ceiling. Uh, Bob, uh, you next and then Stacy, if you could just bring us home. 
Well, Vago, I mean, I'm, I'm focused on the budget uh, and uh, we've had that discussion, but it, it is a difficult time and a worrisome one. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that affected by Afghanistan, but it may well be affected by things like the debt ceiling. So uh, I think it's a time to stay focused and I know you will do that. <laughs> Thanks very much, uh, Bob. That, that's uh, that's uh, that's our calling. That's what we're trying to uh, help people get focused on on the big issues. Uh, Stacy, why don't you uh, bring us home? Thanks very much for the kind words. Thanks, Vago. Um, I think it's uh, without question that what's going on in Afghanistan is a human tragedy, and um, it should have been handled better in terms of uh, the U.S. leaving. Um, I do worry that it could become a distraction in the future, and it's not just the resourcing part of that. It is actually getting the department to think about doing things differently and focusing its energy and attention on that and um, uh, the continuing operations in the Middle East have, uh, it's been very hard for the department to actually do both things at the same time. And, and, and the future has uh, always seems to be deprioritized. I do think that the US needs to watch Afghanistan closely to see how the situation evolves and be prepared to intervene should it appear that there are uh, terrorist groups with, that are intending to um, uh, target Americans again. And if it acts more quickly than it did in Iraq in 2014, um, it should be able to do so successfully. Um, ultimately, as the United States, I would like to believe that when we do things, we do them right. When we say we care about human rights, we do. Otherwise, we're no better than China. At the end of the day, the Chinese don't care about human rights and it's transactional. And for many people, that's more honest. Um, I may have even heard that come from some of our European allies. Um, so I, I think it's, it's kind of, troubling ground we're in and we have to be able to walk and chew gum uh, at the same time everybody thanks so very much for joining us it was a pleasure thank you very much hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week and looking forward to having you back on again thanks so much and now a word from our sponsor retired united states army major general jeff schlosser who is the executive vice president for strategic pursuits at bell We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.